All right, let's go to our scripture reading. Uh, we're going to start with this passage, 2 Timothy 3.16. And you can look at the slide or you can open up your Bible. Um, and I'll let, go ahead and read 2 Timothy 3.16 for us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, for those of you who've been attending our church for some time, um, you're familiar by now. Uh, There's usually a certain structure to the sermons. We have a passage we'll be focusing on, and um, three points usually from that passage, Um, and then some illustrations, and that's how you know I'm a big movie fan. And then an application would follow, usually. Well, if you've been growing somewhat tired of that structure, uh, today's your lucky day, because today we'll not follow that structure at all. Uh, We're going to do something pretty different today. Uh, You, strangely enough, get the applications first. Uh, We'll sort of front load that. And then you get a ton of passages, not just one. And uh, there's going to be one main point throughout the whole thing. And the main point is the title. As we continue in this series of pastoral encouragements, church, we have to remember our true story. Uh, Now, a little bit on why we're talking about this today. Uh, If I were to ask, if I were to go out onto the streets and ask 10 random people today, uh, what is the church? And what is its purpose? Do you think I'll get the same answer from those 10 people? Or do you think it's more likely that I'll get 10 sort of diverging answers from all of them? Most likely diverging answers, right? Um, And if you sort of blow that up on the national scale, what do you have? A very much uh, scattered understanding and perhaps confused understanding of what is the church. Um, And perhaps on on the breaking news level, what you can see are perhaps signs that says, Jesus saves as people storm the Capitol Hill. Because they think, like, this, this is the purpose of the church. Uh, my hope is that through our study of Scripture today, you would have a greater sense of clarity and confidence about what the church is about and what story we're called to live out. And, and like we just heard from Second Timothy, you have to turn to all the Scriptures for that, um, not just parts of Scripture, not just a verse here and a verse there. You know, the folks on Capitol Hill... Uh, I'm pretty sure they, uh, they can pull a few verses from the Bible and, and say, you know, this is my justification for doing this. Right? They can take those verses out of context and say that. But what they can't do is claim from all of the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, that that is what the Bible is centrally talking about. Okay. You can only do that right, when you pull scripture out of context. And that's why we will be focusing on uh, this story through as much as I can from the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Um, now, but before we do that, let me begin by giving you two applications that can sort of immediately make this relevant for us today as we approach this topic. One is a cultural application and the other is a theological application, all right? Uh, here's the cultural application. Uh, there's a theologian named Michael Goheen, and he's written this very helpful book called A Light to the Nations. And in that book, he talks about how it, when you look at any period in history, 
um, especially the history of the church or history of God's people, a problem usually arises when their self-identity is shaped more by their surrounding cultural story rather than the biblical story that's found in the scriptures given to them by God. And that cultural story could be something that you draw from the Egyptians, from Canaanites, from Babylonians, or the Romans, or Americans, or Koreans, or Chinese. Um, Whenever you attach yourself to a cultural story, uh, you become attached to the cultural idols as well. And so Michael Goheen says, as a result of that, that sort of myth replacing the true story from the Bible, the people of God lose their grip on the true mission for which they've been called as God's people. Okay? So in other words, if you get the right story, you, you're, you're on the right mission, but if you get the wrong story, you get on the wrong mission. You confuse what being a Christian is all about. I really think that's the challenge for the church in America today. It's exactly what Michael Goheen is pointing out. There's simply too many alternative uh, mythologies to choose from today. And a lot of Christians are falling for them. Right? There's, for example, the, the cultural myth of nationalism or ethnocentrism. Right? It's where the story of God's people is all about um, strengthening the national borders, legalizing Christian morality, or it's strengthening a particular racial group through religious political influence or dominance. There's also the myth of consumerism, materialism, right? God's purpose for you is for you to accrue as much wealth as possible, for you to go from have not to to have. That's your shalom. That's the evidence that God's favor is upon you. Or there's the myth of self-realization, that the story of God's people is all about these individuals discovering for themselves what their true inner calling is. The list goes on. And when you take, when you take these mythologies and then you, you take a little bit here and a little bit there and then you piece them together to form what you think is Christianity, what you have is not biblical Christianity, but a cultural caricature of Christianity with exaggerated and inaccurate features. And I think you and I live in the greatest sort of factory of cultural mythologies today here in this country. Um, and that usually comes with prosperity and, and a long history of Christian influence. It happened in Rome, it happened in Europe, and it's happening here, right? Steep rise and steep decline of the church. So we have to be able to discern this, I think, now more than ever. Uh, through Scripture, what is true biblical Christianity, and how do I discern that from cultural caricature of Christianity? That's the cultural application. Here's the theological application. I want to caution you against uh, certain type of teachers. Now, I have nothing against you guys listening to other biblical preachers, okay? I am not at all saying um, you can only listen to Pastor Kevin and myself, and don't you ever listen to other preachers. No, I listen to other preachers. But I want to caution you against those who use biblical texts, especially prophetic texts in the Bible, out of context as they engage in earthly politics. I want to caution you against those people who predict certain future political events by using biblical prophetic texts. Uh, just recently, a very influential pastor in California, in one of his sermons, he warned that certain events surrounding this just recent election, the presidential election, could indicate that the road is now paved for the Antichrist to come and usher in the end times. And that riled up a lot of, a lot of Christians all over the country, who follow suit and put out additional so-called prophetic interpretations of current events 
and predictions about future events. Now, the problem with these so-called you know, prophetic uh, interpretations of modern events is they're almost always uh, proven to be untrue. And that's to be expected because Jesus never made it the church's agenda to, to decipher, you know, to kind of decode what's going to happen in the future. He deliberately discouraged that by saying, nobody knows. Nobody can say here it is or there it is or this is when it is. So rather than edifying the church, this kind of theological endeavor ends up leaving a lot of Christians in a state of confusion, even greater state of uncertainty than, than before. Sometimes this also leads people to make sudden and drastic decisions in their lives, uh, not well thought out, not motivated by a clear sense of God's calling, but out of sheer fear and anxiety. They feel like they must make some drastic moves to cope with these sorts of predictions. And you know, when, when this becomes a dominant theme in their Christian life, the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, the love for neighbor, most of all, the great commission to seek and save the lost gets lost. The, the primary things in, in Christian faith get lost as they attach themselves to non-primary things. And just a little historical perspective can show you how this kind of theological application is not very helpful. In the 30s, uh, when... Uh, Okay, let's go to history class. Mussolini was, you know, leading the fascist army in Italy. Uh, American preachers here preached that's the Antichrist. Mussolini is the Antichrist. In World War II, Hitler was coined as the Antichrist. Then it was Stalin. Stalin is, you know, raising up a new Roman empire. Then it was communist China. Then it was the Soviet Union. They're all ushering in the end times. They're all wrong. This is a misuse of theology. This is a misuse of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. It's dumping all of our worries onto a handful of prophetic texts in the Bible as if that's what we're supposed to do with the Bible. I need to locate my anxiety and my fear somewhere in the text. Now, what did those preachers who who made these predictions and applications do to actually evangelize fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, communist China, Soviet Union? Nothing. The mission was lost as they abused, misused theology. My hope, part of my hope is you will cultivate a certain level of theological discernment that you know, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer had, the kind that makes you more missional during a crisis, not less makes you want to enter into the darkness as light, not identify the darkness and run. More at peace about the gospel of the kingdom of God, not more anxious. More hopeful for the future, not less. That's the theological application, all right? Now let's get to the main point and to the text. All right, it, doesn't this feel weird? It's like I'm sort of reversing the whole structure that I usually follow, right? What I want to do for you today is I want to take you back to the scriptures, give you a brief overview of the story of God's people from Genesis to Revelation. And I hope it will give you some bird's eye view of the story to sort of map yourself in that and, and see if you are following this storyline yourself in your, in your walk of faith, in your Christian walk, and gain some level of confidence about it and be able to discern what's out there and say, yes, that is consistent with the story. That is not consistent with the story. All right? Here we go. So some people might think that in order to trace the story of God's people, um, which is the church, we have to go back to the book of Acts. 
that's where this church thing was birthed, and mainly for the sake of you know non-Jewish Gentiles. Well, that's not quite the case. Now, remember, in the especially in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus himself used the word church with his Jewish disciples, and none of the disciples asked Jesus, "Okay, wait a minute, Jesus, what is this thing called the church?" We know kahal, the assembly of God's people, the congregation of God's people, but what is this church you're talking about? Nobody asks him that. Why? Because you see the word for church, ekklesia, is the Greek equivalent of kahal in Hebrew, assembly. It's the same word. That's all that it means in the Greek, an assembly of God's people. That's what church is. Chosen, called out, assembled by God. That's the ekklesia. And to trace, therefore, the story of the church, you have to trace the history of this assembly. And where does this begin? It, it doesn't begin in the book of Acts. You actually have to go back all the way to Genesis, especially where God calls Abram out of his father's country, assembles him and his, his family to be his people. When God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, a pagan idol-worshiping nation, to birth Israel through a non-Israelite. Now, how does God do this? He does this by establishing a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, saying, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, these are the words that mark the very beginning of God's called and assembled people. Kahal, ecclesia. This is where our story begins. And notice from the very beginning, there's a very specific, concrete mission that God gives to Abraham. In verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In mean, some other translations, they use synonyms for the word families, like peoples and nations. This means through Abraham, through his offspring, all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So you see, the, the story of God's people begins with the calling of Abraham, but it doesn't end there. Abraham is promised to be a blessing so that that blessing will be extended to all the nations of the earth. That's built into the story from the very get-go. Through Abraham, not one nation, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay. Essentially, this is saying through Abraham and his offspring, many others will be counted as offspring. Many others will be blessed along with Abraham, just as he's blessed. And this is vital uh, for us to understand this starting point, because this sets up the rest of the story for us. Now the fate of the world hinges on this, whether Abraham's offspring will be a blessing, will be blessed by God so that they can be a blessing to others. Okay. Then this story continues in Exodus, where the people of God descended from Abraham after suffering centuries of slavery are rescued by God. God calls them out and assembles them, right? forms the assembly once again, and he promises them this land to make them a great nation and through them, blessing other nations. It's very much the same covenant he made with Abraham. It's, it's a continual keeping of that promise. Now, the question is, will the Israelites keep this covenantal relationship, stay in this covenantal relationship with God, keep their end of the, the covenant? No, something gets in the way. What, what gets in the way? 
sin gets in the way. What happens instead is they abandon this covenant and decide to put a sort of live out a different Exodus narrative for themselves by worshiping the golden calf. They adopt the myth of their neighboring cultures, pagan cultures, something that symbolized power, wealth, national identity, and not in the land that God was taking them to, but right where they were. They were settling for a cultural mythology. So God is about to take them to court, uh, charge them for breaking the covenant, and pronounce judgment on them. But Moses, the, the prophet of God's people, he pleads on their behalf. He pleads to God for mercy. He, he begs God to remember the covenant he made with Abraham. And what does God do? He, he relents. He spares them from this judgment. He gives them uh, the land that he promised as an oath to them. And here's what he says to them in Exodus 33. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Meaning, go ahead, take the land, but I won't be dwelling there with you. Uh, you will have the physical land, but you will not have my presence. Why? Because that's not what your heart ultimately desires. You want the land, but not my presence. In your sin, you're still desiring something more than me, so I'm not going to go with you. Now, Moses, he, he pleads again with God. Uh, he says, please go with your people. Please gift them what they need, which is uh, your presence. They need that more than the land flowing with milk and honey. And God, out of his sheer mercy, answers Moses' request and says, the very thing that you've requested, I'm going to do for you. For you have found favor in my eyes. And then God cuts two new tablets for Moses, places them in the Ark of the Covenant, and God reestablishes his covenant with his people, uh, reestablishes his presence among his people, Although now it's, it's still in a very distant way where uh, God's people cannot go all the way to touch the Ark of the Covenant that, that represents God's presence. Now they are separated from that at, and kept at a distance because of their sins. But still, where the Ark of the Covenant went, God went, His presence went, and the people would, would prosper. Okay, what happens after this? Well, the judges right, tell the tragic story of Israel's repeated failure. Uh, to respond faithfully to God's keeping of his covenant, his covenantal love. Israel fails to, to cleanse their land of their idols. They continue to adopt practices of their pagan neighbors again and again. And that chaos and disorder culminates to their cry for a king in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 8, it says this, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, the prophet sent from God, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Israel continues to step out of God's storyline, right, and adopt a different storyline like all the other nations, right? So when God's intended mission was for them, for them to be a blessing to other nations and sort of invite them into God's story, they are instead reversing that and entering into the the false mythologies of their pagan culture neighbors. What does that land them uh, with? King Saul, a king elected by the people, rejected by God. Okay. Once again, sin gets in the way. And when Saul, uh, the people's chosen king, is about to bring Israel to ruin, uh, what does God do? He stays faithful. He, st he stays faithful. Uh, uh, steadfast in his love and keeps his covenant with Abraham and he installs another king 
for them, a king after his own heart. He gives them David. And through David, God begins to restore Israel. Through David, God defeats Israel's enemies. God drives out foreign idols from the land. He establishes temple worship. Uh, He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. David becomes a blessing. Not only that, Israel becomes a blessing to their neighboring nations. And so uh, God was still fulfilling his promise to Abraham that my called out people chosen by me, assembled by me, will be a blessing to all the nations. And, and a lot of people during this time thought David is it, right? He's got to be the guy, the offspring of Abraham that fulfills this covenant that God made with Abraham. He is the true offspring of Abraham. He's going to establish this assembly of God forever. But of course, that was not the case. Sin, again, gets in the way. It turns out David himself was subject to that sin, right? a deeply flawed and sinful individual who committed adultery and murder. And so the predicament of Israel persists right, because of sin. But God, once again, remains steadfast in love and faithful to his covenant, like a husband who just keeps coming back to love on the wife who cheats on him time and time again. God promises David that from his line will come another king, a true king whose throne will be established forever. And how will this king do this? How will he do what even David could not do? Uh, This king will do this not by merely removing the physical idols uh, or or defeating the enemies that surround Israel, but by removing the sin problem that's within Israel, the sin that's in their hearts. He will do it not by condemning sinners for their sins, but by paying the payment for sin on their behalf by becoming their sacrifice. The king is going to come essentially to fall on the sword. And that is what the prophets begin to to speak of, the suffering servant in Isaiah and, and this humble king in Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Great. Now he must be coming to take over a political throne. Wait. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So comes this king, who's not at all like the earthly king that people wanted, King Saul. But this king comes, and he came some 2,000 years ago, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, not to take an earthly throne, but to take up the cross, in order to call God's people to repentance and assemble them before this new altar, before the cross. And this king is Jesus. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, the true offspring of David, as the genealogies attest. He is the one who will take the throne that will be established forever and reign over a kingdom that will last forever. And through him, through him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's Jesus. Jesus is the greater David. Uh, He's the king that David himself called my king, my lord, because he's greater. He claims a greater victory over sin by defeating it not just on the outside, but on the inside where its root is. And through him, God's going to usher in a greater presence of God, not limited to the Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain, separated from sinners, but through the body of Christ broken for them. Through him, the better temple. Now the presence of God is open to every person everywhere 
on the earth. So Jesus at the cross becomes our greater temple, our greater high priest, our greater altar, our greater sacrifice, the greater curtain torn in two, opening up for us the very presence of God. So the hope of God's called and assembled people, right, to become God's treasured possession, to be a blessing and to be a blessing to all the nations, comes to fruition in Jesus Christ in a way that it never came to fruition. And by trusting in him, by putting your faith in this Son of God as your true Messiah King, you can be assured that you will be blessed as Abraham was blessed. And you will be counted as an offspring of Abraham. And nothing, nothing will come in between you and that covenantal love of God, just as no amount of sin all throughout biblical history came in between God's love and God's people. Now, when Jesus comes announcing this kingdom, does every knee bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is this King of kings and Lord of lords? No. Uh, as he said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, but turns out not all of them are chosen. Israelites, they, some of them believed, and many of them disbelieved in this Christ and his story of redemption and him fulfilling all the promises God had made to their fathers. They wanted a different story. Uh, like, their, like their forefathers, they wanted an earthly king who would overthrow Caesar's empire. They wanted an earthly priest who would keep their special place in an earthly temple. They wanted their national borders and territories secure like all the other nations. And in choosing to live out that story, that cultural mythology, they begin to abandon the true story of God's covenant with Abraham. So that's why we hear from Jesus uh, repeatedly, time and time again, all throughout the Gospels, there, there is a separation between the chosen and called Israel who have faith in him and the unbelieving, covenant-breaking Israel who don't believe in him. We hear about the separation between the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, the branch that bears good fruit and the branch that does not and will be cut off. Jesus always drew a clear line between the Israel called and assembled by God and Israel of the flesh, merely of the flesh, who live entirely for a different story, for a different Lord and different King. And that's why he says in Romans 4, it is those who carry this faith in Jesus who are truly counted as offspring of Abraham. They are the true kahal, the true church, the true assembly of God, and they will be a blessing unto other nations and prove themselves to be offspring of Abraham. And this is also why Jesus not only identifies himself as light of the world, he also identifies all those who believe in him as light of the world. That's how you know you're truly offspring of Abraham, that you will be a blessing unto others. Do you see how Jesus comes and fulfills all the promises that God made to Abraham? It's all come true in him. And do you see how this is your story and my story, how this is the story of the church, how we have been invited into the family of Abraham, how we are called to be blessed by God and to be a blessing unto others. And we are to be, as Christ was to the world, a light in the darkness. What does that mean? That means we are called, most basically and primarily, 
to seek and to save the lost. Not to point to the lost and say, they're lost, stay away. They're the ones ushering in the Antichrist in the end times. Stay away from them. It's to seek them, to save them. That's the mission. Not to establish an earthly kingdom here by fighting, by storming a capital, fighting the sin out there, but ushering, inviting in the authority of Jesus Christ, the king who conquers the sin in our own hearts. Dealing with the sin that's in your own heart every day, every hour by the power of the cross. That's how you live the story of God's people. You enthrone Jesus as king in your hearts. That's primary. Now, if this is your story, the Bible continues to tell us that you will meet then this final chapter in the eternal kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ, when it comes in fullness when your king will return to wipe away every tear from your eyes, remove every pain and every suffering from this world. And we know from the, the, all the fulfillment passages in the New Testament, just what this true kingdom of God and city of God meant all along. It was always pointing us to the heavenly city where the presence of God is forever there and never removed. It, it's not a land that God gives you without entering in with you like, like in Exodus, this is a land where the Shekinah glory of God dwells not in an ark, but in every street corner, every square inch of existence. And we read about this city in Revelation. The presence of God will be so dominant, so encompassing, that there will be not even be a need for a temple to designate the presence of God. As it says in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And through many passages thereafter, we see that this city is not the Jerusalem that's here on earth. It's another one that comes down out of heaven from God, the new Jerusalem. So we have to remember as we wait, as we announce this coming kingdom, these words from Jesus. And guys, if, if there's anyone in the history of, this, of, of, of the world who had a reason to overthrow, storm a capital, to protest a corrupt political system, it was Jesus. If, if anyone had the right to do that, it was Jesus. And yet we hear him say this, to the very judge who's about to pronounce this unjust judgment, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. If it was of this world, my servants would be fighting. Are there people who are fighting to establish some kind of earthly kingdom for Jesus here now? Please hear this. They are not Jesus' servants. God is not calling you and me to take over an earthly political throne for him. That is not your story. He's not asking you to elect another Saul or even a David. He's not asking you to build another temple for him. He's pointing you to Jesus, the King of kings, the greater David, the greater temple. Our story finds its ultimate hero and its ultimate resolution in Jesus. And we find our ultimate home, our ultimate citizenship in this heavenly city, New 
Jerusalem. And we're called to store all of our treasures there, to place all of our hopes, including our political hopes, there. And we're to worship our way there by faith, putting off our idols, removing them from our land, away from our homes, away from our children, away from our church, away from our workplaces and campuses. We don't live for these idols that our culture worships. We don't live under these mythologies. We live for the biblical story that worships Christ and honors him as king. He is now king of kings, lord of lords. And if you are, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, please know that's your story. And this is my story. And from this, we will receive our mission, which we will hear about next week. And I, I will try my best to be a bit more structured next week than today's. But I hope you will hear this story. And when you, when you open up God's Word every morning, which I hope you're doing, I hope this is the storyline that you will follow. That this call of Christ for you to, to be a light unto the world, to be a blessing to others, to seek and save the lost, is what echoes through the pages when you open up the Bible. And the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So be rooted in the word. Be rooted in the word. Give your ear to the word of God and not to, not to the other narratives, the competing narratives that vie for your attention and fight for your attention. Let's take up God's word and read. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would give us discernment. Uh, you ask, we ask that, Lord, as, as you commanded us to ask, uh, for your wisdom, because we need it, Lord, during this time of great confusion and, and also uh, competition uh, with this true biblical story of how Jesus Christ is our King, how Jesus Christ is our temple, how his kingdom is not of this world. Lord, we, we need to be rooted in this story, and we need to be living for your mission. And for that, God, we need discernment and wisdom. So help us and send your spirit, our helper, to teach us. Uh, may our church be your true called-out assembled people, your true ecclesia, your true kahal, and may we, Lord, be a blessing, therefore, to all those around us, and may we be a light to the darkness around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.